you cannot have one witness uh, for any sin that must be done. This is a continuation of a previous law which we've seen in, in our parasha, which was the law of the, the fact that you need two witnesses. But the reason why we're introducing this law again is not because we need to repeat ourselves because we already explained that we need two witnesses in the context of the Abu Dazara. The reason we're saying it now is because we're going to introduce a new law, which is what happens if the witnesses are lying. Last time we saw this law, we asked that question. How do we deter witnesses from lying? And um, we do that with the following law. The, the law basically which is going to say that if you find witnesses to be lying, first of all, you have to look into the witnesses carefully and scan them carefully. And if you find a witness to be lying, then you do to the witness exactly what they plotted to do. So if the witness was going to bring upon his friend a death penalty, the witness is the one who gets the death penalty and not the friend. And by doing that, the rest of Israel will see it and they will be afraid and they will no longer even have the gall to do such a bad thing, which is to lie in court and to corrupt the Jewish court system. If, a, let's say, a witness comes to speak deviously about his friend, two people that had the, and two people who had their fight and who are before the court, they come before the court, before the, before the judges that are in that day, and the Shofetim, they look into the matter carefully, and they see that the witness that has come is a lying witness. They do to him as he planned to do against his brother. And you will eradicate this evil from your midst. The people who, are, who remain, meaning the rest of Israel, who could potentially be witnesses, will see this and they will be afraid. And they will no longer do this evil thing in your midst. Do not have any mercy on the man. Whether it is a, is a uh, life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or hand for a hand, or a foot for a foot, you shall do to the man exactly as he plotted to do against his brother. Again, the, the main effect here is to punish the witness in a public way so that it has a deterring effect on other people who may want to lie and, uh, and do something like that in court. Uh, so, so we do not want that to occur. Okay. Now, the next part of our parasha is going to speak about laws that apply to B'nai Israel as they go out to battle. Uh, this is relevant, again, I don't know how it's relevant, how it's, it connects from part to part in our parasha, but it is very clearly part of the mitzvot that apply to B'nai Israel as they are entering the land of Israel, because when they go into the land of Israel, that is when they are in battle. The portion here is going to be interesting because it's going to be it's going to tell us who are the people who are exempt from battle. Now, what's very interesting about the portion is that there are going to be four general exemptions from going to battle in, 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 with the, the army of Israel, and we're going to try to see what is the underlying theme that that is uh, that underlies these four ideas, these four exemptions for battle. When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horse and chariot, a great nation, do not fear them. For God is with you who takes you out of Egypt. When you approach battle, and the Kohen will approach and he will speak to the people. The Kohen spoken of here is the Kohen Mashuach Milchama. He's a Kohen who is anointed for battle. He's like a Kohen 
who is uh, his duty is to help the people as they go out to battle. And apparently, based on what we're seeing here, he has some. He's like the motivator and the 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 spiritual advisor of the people as they go out to battle. And he tells them that Maralehem, you shall speak to the children of Israel and say, "You today are approaching battle against your enemies. Do not." Let your hearts be weakened or softened. Do not fear. Do not become afraid. And do not uh, become, uh, do not lack uh, courage from them. For Hashem, your God, He is with you to do battle with you against your enemies to save you. Meaning, do not be afraid even though your enemies are stronger than you as the first Pasuk says. That doesn't mean anything because your defender, the person who saves you, is Borei Olam. And he has all the strength in the world, so do not be afraid. But the the, uh, the leaders will speak, the officers will speak then to the people after they've gotten their, their pep talk from the Kohen. The officers now speak to the people and they say, Who is a man who built a new home and he has not inaugurated it, meaning he has not lived in it? He shall go back to his house. Or who is a person who planted a vineyard and he has not eaten of the fruits? He shall go back to his house. Who is the person who is engaged to a woman and has not wed her? He shall go back and marry her, lest another person marry her and he not to be the one, not get to, to marry her. All of these people who are on the precipice of a life event, building a new home, planting a vineyard, marrying a woman, they should all go back to their homes because we do not want them in battle. And then the Shoterim, they say, shoterim, the, am, the officers now say to the people, and they say, hayare, Who is the man who fears? Who is the man who is fearful or has a weak heart? He shall go back to his house. He shall not melt the heart of his brethren like his own heart. And it will be when the officers finish speaking to the people and the leaders of uh, the captains of the people shall be appointed at the head of the people and they should get ready to go to battle. So whenever the, the officers finish saying this, then they are ready to go out to battle. So we saw four things. The person who built a house, the person who planted a vineyard, the person who wed, who got engaged, and a person who is afraid. The question is, what is the relationship between all of these things? So one interpretation is to say that they're all really the same thing. The main problem we have here is that potentially the person who goes out to battle will be afraid. And since we do not want people who are afraid to go out to war, because they're going to cause other people to be afraid, right? Because if the one person is afraid, that has, that'll cause other people to be afraid also. It's kind of like a... Uh, it's it's infective. It's uh, it'll 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 have that effect. It's a, the fear is contagious. Then we tell anybody who has potential to be afraid to go home. Now, besides for the person who's generally afraid, also people who are very excited about doing something like marrying a woman or or building a house or or planting a, or, or benefiting from their vineyard. All of these people who are concerned may also be afraid. And because of that, we do not want them to go out to war because of their potential to lose faith in war and to become afraid and, uh, and cause their brethren to, to also be, be afraid. That is one interpretation. Now, there's a separate interpretation, which is also very deep, which is there are actually two separate things. There are two separate reasons why we don't want people going out to war. The fourth and final one was that we are afraid. We do not want people who are afraid to go out to battle. And that's purely tactical. 
That's because we don't want uh, people who are not confident to be going out to battle with people who are confident, lest they uh, they give over their lack of confidence to their brethren. But the first three things are not necessarily because we are afraid that these people will be scared. It's because we want to send a message to Bnei Israel that there's more to life than going out to battle. In other societies in Israel, in other societies that were not in Israel society, people would go out to battle, and their whole goal in life was to become uh, warriors and, and conquerors of other lands and to amass as much land as they possibly can. But in Israel, starting a family, building a home, providing for the family, these are all things that are much more valuable to life than conquering other peoples. They're much more valuable than going out to war. And the message we're sending to Am Israel when we send people home from war is that fighting war and conquering are not Am Israel's highest value. Your personal life is more important than the nation's successful conquest of other peoples. And therefore, when you are on the, on the bout to do something very exciting in life, it's okay for you not to go out to battle. Because that's more important than the, nation, than the nation's success, military conquest, and conquering of land. It's almost like uh, in a lot of societies today, or a lot of societies in the 20th century, the state became the ultimate thing that people must serve. All people w- would worship the state and would, would nullify their wishes for the wishes of the state. Socialist societies, fascist societies, communist societies, all had this idea. <coughs> Am Israel has a balance. You have to contribute to your state, but you also have a personal life, which is of much significance and is very important, and we do not require you to sacrifice your entire personal life for the sake for the sake of the state. That seems to be one of the hidden messages in this portion. The next portion is an, another interesting portion that's up to much debate, and that is the laws of engagement. Whenever Am Yisrael goes out to battle against their enemies, there are laws of engagement for when we are allowed to fight our enemies. Are we allowed to fight them? Uh, are we allowed to go out to war wantonly and without any any hesitation? Or do we have to be careful and, and offer peace first? The general rule is going to be that when we go out to war that is not in Israel proper, then we always have to offer, offer peace. And if they're willing to accept our peace, we're not allowed to attack. It differs when it's in Israel proper because in Israel proper there's a concern of influence. Where if we were to just make peace with everyone and allow them to remain and, and they were to remain in their ways in their serving Abu Dazarah and all the seven nations which we were approaching as we were to enter the land of Israel, we would just make peace with them and let them continue their Abu Dazarah. The concern is that they would, their Abu Dazarah would influence us and would corrupt Am Israel. So while when we go out and we're doing battle for the sake of, let's say, conquest or, or finding a, a resources or for wealth, we have to offer peace first, and we're not concerned with the influence element because there is no influence element because there are no Jews living there. When we do battle inside Eretz Israel, the laws are a little bit different, and we must be more concerned with the potential for negative influence from the people. So the, the rules are a little bit different. Now, what, how different are the rules is a matter for debate because the psukim are not exactly clear. But it seems to be like while when we go out to war with a... Uh, a a people that are not in Israel proper, we always have to offer peace. In Israel, we also have to offer peace, but if, if they do not agree 
to uh, completely give in to our ways and to change their ways and convert their behaviors to, to, uh, and start serving Hashem as the one God, then we have to eradicate them completely. We cannot keep anybody, even the women and children, must be destroyed. Uh, that, it's, it's hard to find that in our text in Aliyah Shevi'i from Pasuk Yud 1 to 18. It's not exactly clear how that's read, but if you look at Sefer Yoshua, the, the Pesukim there are pretty clear that Bnei Israel did offer peace even to the seven nations that we approached in the land of Israel, which means that if we were offering them peace, then what the text is really telling us is that we have to avoid, even when we make peace with the seven nations, we have to force them either to convert, or if they're not going to convert, we have to destroy them completely. Okay, And if they, if they do not make peace with us, then we have to destroy them completely. I'm going to read it inside, uh, just so we can get a picture of that. When you approach a city to do battle against it, you will call out to peace first. If they come out to you in peace first, then, <coughs> then the people that are in there will just, uh, and they agree to pay your tax, and they will serve you. You do not destroy them. But if they do not make peace with you, and they make war with you, then you shall destroy them. But in the course of destroying them, you must keep alive the women and the children. You're not allowed to kill non-combatants. You're not allowed to kill. But if you go into the land of Israel, if you go into the land of Israel, this is Pasuk 16, that God is giving you as a portion for you to live there, you shall not leave anybody alive. Now, under what circumstances do you not leave anybody alive? It seems, again, based on our interpretation of Sefer Yoshua, that when they did not agree to make peace and they come out in war, you're not allowed to leave anybody alive. You can't even keep the women and children alive because we know, especially with the women, that the women can become a great source of, of, uh, of, of uh, influence on Bnei Israel, like we saw with the daughters of Midian and Moab when Bnei Israel were, in, were approaching Israel in the story of Pinchas and the story right after the story of Balak. So uh, if we are in Israel proper and they do not make peace with us, then we have to destroy all of them. But if we are outside the land of Israel and we're just doing war for the sake of doing war, for the sake of uh, finding resources, then we never ever kill non-combatants. We only attack men who are there. And the reason, Pasuk 18, So that they shall not teach you to do according to their abominations, that they, do, that they did to their gods. You'll end up sinning to Hashem your God. The final law that we're going to be doing today is the law of do not of not destroying fruit-bearing trees in the course of doing battle. There is a, a desire in, in war to sometimes use scorched earth policy, which is when you do battle and you destroy all the resources you can along the way so that your enemy has nothing to eat and nothing, no resources to, to sustain their battle. It's a form of a war of attrition in which you're just trying to tire the enemy out. Now the problem with this is that you're destroying God's creations in the course of doing this. So the Torah says you're not allowed to cut down the fruit-bearing trees because those are those fruit-bearing trees. These aren't the kinds of people. The, the fruit-bearing tree is not a human being that's going to come against you and do battle with you. A fruit-bearing tree is the creation of God, and what this shows us—the fact that we're not allowed to destroy fruit-bearing trees—what this shows us is that is that the people of Israel, even in the course of battle, which you would expect people to kind of lose their senses, we never lose focus on the fact that the world is a gift, that God has given us a gift in giving us all of the 
the, the bounty of this world. And even when we are in the most heated time, which is when we go out to war, we never lose sight of the fact that God created the world and we always have respect for the beautiful creations that God gives. So in the course of battle, we do not destroy fruit-bearing trees. All The only trees we can cut down are the non-fruit-bearing trees. Baruch Adonai Lulam. Amen. Amen.